Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. So let's go ahead for sake of time this morning. Let's go ahead and dive right into Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 for the next couple of weeks. We're going to be camped out in Romans 8 because Romans 8 is full of stuff that we must get and we must understand. So beginning in verse number 1, it says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Let's, let's look at that again. Therefore, there is how much condemnation? There is none. Zero. Zilch. Nada. It's the Greek word for none. Okay? There's none. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. Has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of his sinful flesh as a sin offering. That's the gospel that we looked at through chapters 1 through 5 and then into 6 and to 7. In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk after the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh will be hostile towards God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to even do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. Now he's speaking to those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and who have called upon him for their sins to be forgiven. But he says, you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would speak today. I know that I'm the human messenger this morning, but I pray, Lord, that I would die to myself and that you would hinder me from saying anything that would keep your word from going forth the way you want today. I pray that you would give us the ears to hear, the hearts to listen, and the spiritual humility to be able to take in and, and present ourselves before you and say, here I am, mold me, shape me to your word. Do a work in us this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So in verses in verse 1, I mean, verse 1 is like, kind of like many people have said, verse number 1 is like the super verse of Scripture, a super verse of the gospel that tells us the results of the gospel. When it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, this entire chapter is widely known as the greatest and most powerful chapter in all of the Bible. So for new believers, a lot of times when somebody first puts their faith and trust in Christ and they say, I want to get into studying God's word, I usually try to point them to the book of John because the book of John is going to just show a really, uh, just a really beautiful picture of Jesus, the one you've just started a relationship with. And it's going to kind of just show you who he is. It's going to just see his heartbeat, see what he does. But I would also say the preface to all of that, the preface to John, would be Romans chapter 8 because it says what we have in Christ, all right? One scholar says the greatest book in the world is the Bible, no doubt about it. The greatest letter in that book is the book of Romans, and the greatest chapter in that letter is Romans chapter 8. And then he drills down to even say that the best verse is verse number 1. Why is it so good? Why is it so important? Because it begins with no condemnation. 
It says, there is no more condemnation. I don't know about you, but every time I get onto like social media and stuff, and I'm afraid to sometimes tweet stuff because have you ever noticed there's a lot of trolls out there that just constantly try to troll you and bring condemnation where condemnation really doesn't even need to be? You know, like if I even just tweet something like eating lunch today and somebody, some troll will be like, man, why are you eating lunch? I hope you're staying in your calorie take and all that. It's like, come on, man, just give people a break, right? It's nice to open the word, the truth of God's word and say, if you're in Jesus, there's no condemnation. There is no condemnation. And then chapter 8 ends with, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, it ends in verse number 39 with no separation from God. Chapter 8 begins with no condemnation in Jesus Christ and also no separation from God. That means there ain't no mountain high enough, no valley low enough. I'm sounding like a Motown song now. There's nowhere you go that you'll ever be separated from God in Christ Jesus, ever. You can't even run away from him. You can't even say, just leave me alone for a little while because once you belong to Christ, you're in his hand. See, where, seven, where chapter seven, the last half, half of chapter seven describes our new self in relation to the law, that the law doesn't condemn me anymore, the law doesn't hold me down, chapter eight describes the new self in the relation to the Holy Spirit. What Paul was describing over here in chapter 7 when he's like, I, I just can't get my act together, he was leaving out what he's going to bring into the equation in chapter 8, and that is the Holy Spirit that now dwells inside of a believer. There's an important question that is unlocked in chapter 8 that we have to basically really kind of take to heart here, and that is this. If the gospel really is true, if the gospel really is true, and we have to reckon with that, is the gospel true? If you say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, you have professed the gospel is true. I believe that Jesus died. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead. And I believe that he is my personal Lord and Savior. And I've, I've let it all ride on Jesus. I've let my whole eternity ride on Jesus. If the gospel is true, and we have personally applied that to my life, how is that going to change the way that I see my life? Because we've been living under this understanding that the gospel changes everything, right? That means it doesn't just change tomorrow and give me that get out of hell free card. It should change the here and now as well. If the gospel really is true, how is that changing the way I see my, see my life? How does that change the way I live my life? And how does that change the way I assess my life too? How do I assess my success and failure and my joy and my happiness in life in light of the gospel? Because if the gospel changes everything, it changes everything about our lives. How does that change the way I see myself? How does it change the way I see my problems? How does it change the way I see the people in my life and the world around me? See, because it's very easy to view the gospel and look at the word and view it in the abstract. To look at it just like something that I got to absorb in my head and know a lot of things. Because a lot of times Christianity is about, oh, I know a whole lot of stuff and working my way up this ladder of knowledge. But that's not what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us that we are starting out on a new relationship and a new journey. That every day we come to know God more and we come to know more about us. And it makes us look less and him look bigger. See, the gospel should change our view of everything, right? It's easy to look at it in the abstract and say, yeah, I've, 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 I, I understand what the Bible is saying. And I understand what Paul is saying here. But it doesn't really have any effect on the way I live my life. If what we do in here has no application to what we do out there, what good is it? That's basically kind of what we have to look at here. If the gospel is true, how does it affect the way I live 
my life. Chapters 9 and 10 are going to really press into how the gospel should change your life and your mission and your vision for your life. But for the next few weeks, we're going to be in chapter 8 looking at how it changes how I see myself. Because look at chapter 7, Paul saw himself as a wreck, right? But in chapter 8, it begins to change the view. Chapter 8, I look at it kind of like this pep talk. So I grew up playing sports. No, it doesn't look like I did. I've now grown out of playing sports, okay? But I grew up playing sports. And chapter 8 is kind of like the pep talks that our coaches would give us in the locker room when we went on a road game. And like you could hear everybody, like all the rabid fans out there, like beating on stuff. And you're just like scared to go out there because you feel like you're getting ready to go into the gladiators arena. And we kind of know because we went through warm-ups and we saw the other team was huge and like, you know, they could dunk on their tiptoes and we're, we can't even dunk and things. And the coach would give us this pep talk trying to remind us how we've practiced and we've done all the things that we know to do. And they would give us this pep talk to make us feel like we see ourselves as able to compete. This is what chapter 8 is. Chapter 8 is not just a pep talk trying to get us to believe something that's not true. Chapter 8 is a pep talk getting us to realize what is true because of the gospel now. That without Christ, we were nothing. But in Christ, we have more than we will ever need. And we are already victorious in him who loves us. Just like the songs that we just sang this morning. Oh, how he loves us. He's jealous for me because of his love. I can conquer anything that he brings me to. So there's a couple of themes and notes to identify from chapter 8. And that is, the first is that Paul's shifting our focus from where we were. We were under sin. We were under the law. We were defeated by that. Now to where we are under grace, no condemnation, in Christ, empowered by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to be introduced here in chapter 8. He's going to be mentioned 19 times through the whole chapter. In the Baptist tradition, sometimes we have this tendency to kind of minimize the Holy Spirit, which we should never do because we have to understand that minimizing just one part of the Trinity is minimizing God. The Holy Spirit is alive and active, and if he's going to fill us with his presence, we don't need to try to minimize him, right? So this is the perspective that moves us forward and provides us with an idea that I have freedom in Christ. I have freedom in Christ. Don't forget that word that we see here in verse number three and four, or in verse number two, I'm sorry. Jesus has set you free from the law of sin. So that's kind of the big idea today. In, in chapter 8, we're going to see that God has provided us with a great, unmatched, unending, unshakable freedom. And that freedom comes in about four ways. Number one, it comes as freedom from condemnation. Paul says, you are now no more in condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. If you like to take notes in your Bible, you like to circle, you like to highlight, highlight, circle, whatever, that, ver that first word, therefore. Now, most of us know that that's kind of a conjunction in grammar, right? It's usually to connect two thoughts. Anytime you see that word, therefore, in the text, you say, what's therefore, therefore. See, that's real hard. That's real hard stuff to remember, right? Therefore. It says, has there ever been a more powerful therefore in the Bible? Okay, why? Because this is Paul's answer to the struggle that he's seeing in chapter 7. He's like, the good I want to do, I don't do. The good that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And he's talking about sin. He's like, now that I have the, the, the Savior, and now that, I'm, now that I'm saved, and now that I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to be walking on this new road, why is it that I continually find myself still tempted with doing all the stuff that I know I'm not supposed to do? This is his answer. The answer is, you are still going to be tempted, but walk in this truth. You're not condemned by it anymore. You are no longer condemned by sin. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he died and he shed his blood to wash away all of our sin, past, present, and future. So there is now no condemnation. That means there is nothing 
that someone can lay on you that God is holding against you in Jesus Christ. You get that? Because we're real good at laying stuff on people, aren't we? Laying it at their feet and say, there's that. What are you going to do with it? And here's what God did on the cross. Jesus took care of it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. It's Paul's connection to what was going on in chapter 7 and his connection to chapter 8, understanding that anything good about being a Christian has nothing to do with him. And, and, and church, get this. Anything, anything good about us in our Christian lives has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Jesus and what he has already done and what he is doing through us. Then he asks, well, since I'm going to still be tempted, since I'm still going to probably fall in sin, I'm still going to struggle with sin, even though I'm a believer, how much guilt and shame and condemnation should I have and should I carry with me? Because I don't know about you, but perfectionist as I am, when I mess up, I carry that failure with me everywhere I go. Here's what Paul said. Therefore, because of the gospel, there is no condemnation. For those in Christ Jesus. Here's his answer. How much guilt and shame should I carry? How much should I beat myself up for my failures? Absolutely none. None. There is no condemnation. See, condemnation is this legal term, right? This is a legal term that we use that means to pass judgment on somebody. It also implies the guilt, the shame, the castigation that comes from a guilty verdict being cast on someone. If you ever watch like true TV or not true TV or court TV or whatever, and you see somebody with a guilty verdict, everybody just like just leers at them as they're headed out of the courtroom onto their sentencing, right? That's that condemnation that comes from that. But Paul says, there's now no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Were we guilty? Absolutely. Doesn't mean we're not guilty. It means we're no longer condemned. It means we're pardoned and no longer condemned. We no longer carry that shame. We no longer carry that guilt. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says. It would be unjust for God to hold the believer responsible for sin because it would require two payments for the same sin. Do you ever think about that? Why do we carry around shame for our sin if God has already redeemed us of that at the cross? If we have already trusted in Christ, why would we condemn ourselves for a sin that has already been forgiven? And this applies to past and present and future sin. See, some people think that salvation, when I come to Christ and when I become a follower of Jesus, it wipes me clean of all of my sins of the past up until that moment that I said, Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner, and I'm becoming a Christian. But then we somehow get this idea that after that, I still got to carry the weight of the sins that I commit in the future. That is not what Romans 8, 1 is saying. He's saying that when Jesus died on the cross and he shed his blood, he shed his blood for all sins, all time. If you're having stro tr trouble thinking about this, then think about this. When Jesus was on the cross dying for your sins, that's like thousands of years ago. None of us were alive to have even committed a sin yet, yet he paid for those. He's paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. That is why when we are in Christ, there is no condemnation on us. And it's why Jesus said, it is finished. The work of forgiveness is finished. So the gospel sets us free from all the condemnation, all the shame, all the guilt, sin, past, present, and future. Does that mean that we'll never feel bad? Does that mean the Holy Spirit won't remind us of things that we've done that have gone against God's word? No, it doesn't mean that. Yes, we'll feel that, but we don't need to carry that shame once it's been forgiven. See, to insist on carrying your guilt over your sin that is already under the blood of Jesus Christ is to pridefully tell God that I still need to help him out with my salvation. But there's nothing that I can do on my own to help him with that. So this is where we are. We are free 
from condemnation. Now let's look at number two. This is why we're free from condemnation. We're free from condemnation because we're in Christ. This is a big thing. I'm not free from condemnation because I wised up one day and said, hey, I'm going to get saved. I'm free from condemnation because being saved placed me in the hands of Jesus Christ. It placed me there under his hand. It placed me in him. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, in Christ, that phrase is one of Paul's favorite phrases to use, and it shows up in 75% of the New Testament. He uses it in every letter that he writes, every single one. This is what he says. But what does it actually mean to be in Christ? What's it mean to say, I'm in Christ Jesus? What does all of it imply? Well, the best way to see it is, is all the way back in the book of Genesis. Thousands of years before Jesus came, Christ would, would ever place us in him we see this beautiful picture in Noah's Ark, right? You all remember Noah's Ark, the, you know, the little cartoon drawing of Noah and all these animals that are like pushing their heads out of the ark and everything. That's not an accurate description of what the ark looked like. But here's what the ark teaches us. If you remember the story, God came to Noah and said, hey, there's going to be a flood. And Noah's like, what's a flood? He's like, well, it's, God's like, well, there's a whole bunch of rain that's going to fall. And he's like, what's rain? We've never seen that before either. And he's like, okay, just trust me. There's going to be a whole lot of water, okay, everywhere. And it's going to like fill up and the whole world's going to be a swimming pool. And I got a way to save you from this. I want you to build this ark. And so he builds it. It takes him like 120 years to build this ark, Okay. Because YouTube wasn't around to show them how to DIY stuff and, and all that type of stuff. TikTok videos didn't exist back then either. Okay? So he's, you know, he's building this ark. He's trying to figure it all out. He builds it. It's all already done. And before one drop of rain falls, God tells Noah, go get your family in the boat. They've already got all the animals in there, two by two. Everything's in there. And he says, go get your family in the boat. And they go and they get in the boat. And something very interesting happens. Every, nobody else, just Noah's family, everybody else was like, Noah is the dumbest man on the planet. He spent 120 years building this boat, and we don't even have rain. It's not even close to a dock anywhere. He's ridiculous. Noah obeys God. He goes and gets in the boat. And then the Bible says something very interesting in the book of Genesis. The Bible says, God shut the door and sealed them inside. It doesn't say that God told him to get in the boat, and then Noah closed it. If you get on a boat, normally you're going to close the door or whatever like that. He doesn't tell Noah, now get out some hammer and nails and seal up the door because there's going to be a lot of water. No, God does all that. Why? Because a beautiful picture of what salvation is for us. God sees the flood of sin that we brought on ourselves, And he said, if you'll just believe in me, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that he doesn't ask us to build a boat for 120 years to prove our faith? Right? All he asks is for us to get in the boat. And the Bible says that he sealed them inside it. God did all the work of sealing them. Jesus has done all of the work of sealing us in him. I don't have to stay in Jesus. I'm just in Jesus. And he keeps me in him. That's what it means to be in Christ. That means that once I am saved, I'm eternally secure in him. I have no condemnation and I'm eternally sealed inside with him. There's no place I can run that God's not going to know and see me and want me and desire me. If I'm in Christ, the law no longer can condemn me. If I'm in Christ, death can no longer threaten me. If I'm in Christ, fear can no longer have its grip on me. If I'm in Christ, that means that there is nothing that I can do to make God love me more or make me love him less. He just loves me. 
And one of the hardest things to do as a Christian is to begin to live like, you've, like you're loved because we don't see that like replicated in the world around us a whole lot of times. Many people think that God loves you more and more the more you become like Christ, but the gospel tells us that we have been absorbed into Christ. What that means is that when God looks at us in Christ, he sees Jesus. The Bible says that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, meaning it's been put on us. That when he looks at our sin and our guilt, he doesn't see our sin and our guilt and the rejection and the rebellion. What he sees is the blood of Christ that has been applied to us. He doesn't see us, he sees Christ. That's what it means to be in him. And there's nothing more that I could do to be more in Christ than I am the moment that I say, Lord, accept me into your family. See, God doesn't love you to the degree that you're like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ. And we are always in Christ 100%. Not because of us, but because of him. So if you know Christ, you're in Christ. There's no doubt about that. And it also means that the Spirit of God is inside of us. Look at verse number two. It says, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of a sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not work according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. We see these two opposing laws, right? The law of the Spirit and the law of death. And we say, hold on for a second. I thought you said that I'm not, con I'm not condemned anymore. Why am I under this new law of the Spirit? Well, the law there is not like a, a checklist, do and don't thing. It's a new principle by which I live my life. That I am now filled with the Spirit of God, and I'm, under, I'm just living under a new nature now. It's a new law. Kind of like the law of gravity, right? Everybody understands the law of gravity, right? You may not understand it, but you're living by it right now because you're not floating around in the air here, okay? Does anybody have a, anybody have a coin? I forgot to bring one up here. Anybody got a coin on them? Just any kind of coin? Anybody? <laughs> Say, hold on, man. <laughs> We're not passing an offering plate, but pastor's asking for money in the pulpit. Thanks. A penny. Sweet, bro. It's like the widow's mite over here. That's the, your lucky penny. All right, good. I'm going to use this here in just a second, okay? To go buy a piece of candy. No, I'm just eating. Um, <laughs> all right. The usage of the word law here is not like the Old Testament laws that condemned us. It's a new law of the spirit that we live in, okay? So it's kind of like the law of gravity. If I drop this coin, what's going to happen to it? You sure about that? What if it doesn't? This would be awesome if it does. Oh yeah, it falls. Look at that. It falls to the ground, right? That's because the law of gravity applies, right? The law of sin applies. When we sin, we descend, all right? But there's this new law of the spirit. What happens if I drop this but I and I catch it in my hand? What happens? It's caught. The law of gravity is still applying though, right? Because if I move my hand, it's going to continue to fall. But now I have stopped it. What has stopped it? The force of my hand being stronger than the force of the gravity pulling it to the ground, right? That's like the gospel. That's like what happens when we get saved. The moment I get saved, the force of sin has stopped because of the power of the gospel. Now that I'm in Christ and the Spirit is in me, not only do I have this law that has conquered the, the law of sin, but now when I was falling, I was caught and I'm being brought up now. Not only has it conquered it, but it has defeated it forevermore and changed me to a completely different status. Here you go. Gravity. 
Caught it. Good job. All right. See, that's kind of what it means to be in Christ. I was continually under this law of sin that was going to continually bring me down. But Jesus stepped in and he broke that. And his power is strong enough to change that. Is the law, does the law of sin still apply? Yes. But the law of the Spirit applies even more. That means that I have now the power to say no to sin. I have the power to run to Jesus when I'm feeling as though I'm under temptation or I'm beaten down. So we used to operate under this old principle that if we did everything right, we'd be accepted but now the new principle is there's nothing that I can do to be accepted more than I already am because I'm already accepted 100% by God in Christ Jesus. So what's my role in any of that? Just to rest in the law. Just to be that coin, man. Just resting and letting God carry me. And that requires faithfulness, right? In verse 3, we see that Jesus gave himself to free us from the sin. But every time what we see is when Jesus frees us from sin, he has a direction for us to go. He doesn't just free us for the sake of freedom. He frees us for the sake of purpose. Every time Jesus healed a lame person in scripture, two things happened. Number one, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Because healing doesn't happen unless our sins are forgiven. And number two, he says, get up and walk. Because when Jesus saves us, he saves us to move us in his direction. And that's what the Spirit does. This is what the gospel has done for us. It has saved us, has forgiven us of sin, and moving us in a direction. The third freedom that we enjoy is the freedom to think and act differently than we ever have. How do I do that? I think differently. In verse number five, it says, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. The mindset of the flesh is death. The mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So here Paul says that this new law, this new principle of living in the spirit presents us with a new mindset. That since I know I can't lose, I'm free to move and to chase those dreams that God has given me. See, with that new mindset, it's in direct opposition to the old one. You see, before we were bound to think only what the flesh dictated to us. We were bound to only do what temptation, what sin, and what the flesh told us to do. Now we have the mindset to think according to what the Spirit of God who lives inside of us thinks. And is illuminating to us to do in God's way and will. See, we see that the mindset of the flesh is one that is set on death. One that is only set on where this is all going to end up and it's all pretty hopeless, but now in the gospel, the mindset is one of life and peace. We see that the mindset of the, of the flesh later on in that passage is it is hostile and it is rebellious to God. It doesn't appreciate what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us and it refuses to submit. The mindset of the flesh is also unable to please God. It's rebellious because it knows it has no hope to please him. But the mindset of the Spirit is set on pleasing God, desiring to obey him, to be like him, to think like him, because he's the most beautiful thing in our lives. Not because it gets us anywhere closer or gets us anywhere better, but because he is better. We've seen the way of death and the way of life is so much better. We're even invited in scripture to think like Jesus. We're invited to this mindset. In Philippians chapter two, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So but in Christ, we have the freedom to follow him or not. That's what Paul said too. The beautiful thing about salvation is that God gives us the free will to trust him. He also gives us the free will after we've trusted him whether we want to continue following him. So this mindset that we have going on, this, this balance of mindset, sometimes we give in to the way of the flesh and sometimes we give in to the mindset of the spirit. They're constantly working against one another. We can embrace the call of the spirit 
toward life and peace, or we can follow the call to carnality or to the flesh and all the outcomes that the warning declares. So, but I didn't think I could go to hell if I was saved. You're right. I'm not talking about going to hell. I'm talking about the death of our relationship, the death of a lot of those other things. See, there's only one way to avoid the mistakes made by the carnal mind, and that is to have the mind of Christ. So he says, instead of following the mind of the flesh, follow the mind of Christ. You're free now to do that. You weren't free before to do that. One of the most intense battles that we have in faith in our modern day is that battle of the mind. There is constantly stuff coming at us, telling us that the mindset of the spirit is wrong, inherently wrong. We often speak in faith in terms of our hearts and souls, but scripture deals with the mind a whole lot. The philosopher Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. See, the Bible understands as well that while we receive Jesus in our heart and in our spirit, it will then affect the way our minds think. And here's what Paul said in Philippians. He said, the peace of God that surpasses all of our understanding, it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, and if there's anything that is praiseworthy, think on these things. I love what Pastor Craig Rochelle says. He says this, he says, the trajectory of our lives is always moving in the direction of our most dominant thoughts. Do you catch that? The trajectory of our lives will always move in the same direction as the most dominant thoughts that we have. What that means is if I'm not following the pattern of Philippians 4.8, thinking thoughts that are true and peaceworthy and all of those things, and if I'm thinking the thoughts of death and the thoughts of what all the trolls are saying to me on social media, then that's the direction my life is going to run. That's not a power of positive thinking thing. That's just a power of thinking on what the Spirit has told us to think. I'm not saying if you can see it, you can be it type of pop psychology type stuff. It's about letting the mind of God and the mind of Christ control us rather than the mind of the flesh. So we should never underestimate the freedom that we've been given to think and act like our Savior. And we should never underestimate the dangers of wasting that freedom that we have. And then lastly, because I know we need to close out. It's number four. We're free to live like God intended. And that's really the result of the gospel. See, when God created man in the Garden of Eden, he created them without sin. Created them with that mindset of the spirit, no mindset of the flesh. But because of sin, everything got messed up. And life was no longer like God intended for him. So God returns us to this life that he intended for us. Look at verse number 9. It says, you, however, you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. I mean, don't you love how verse number 9 starts out, right? He says, you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit. But then it continues with the rest. He's like, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. Don't you hate that uncertainty in that word, if? Right? You are in, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. It's actually asking, it's asking us to all assess. Does the spirit of God live in us? Do you know for sure that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? What is it that you're basing your faith on? Are you basing your faith on Jesus or on you? Do you have that relationship with him? 
There are some who say that the Spirit will come to you sometime after salvation and after you've done a few things, but that word lives right there in the Greek is in the continual present tense. It's a continual abiding. From the very moment that we say, Lord, I want you to be my Savior, the Spirit lives inside of you. It's called the baptism of the Spirit that happens the very moment we say, God, I trust you. This means that the amount of spiritual power that we have in us has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. See, we can't get rid of the Spirit once we're saved, but we can quench Him once we're saved. We can grieve Him. We can avoid fellowship with Him. We can ignore Him. We can ignore the mind and the illumination that He is leading us to, and it will lead us down the path that the flesh will always lead us down. So let me ask you this question. Are you in fellowship? And this is the question we have to ask of ourselves. Are you, Christian, are you in fellowship with Him? Do you find yourself in fellowship with Jesus? Or more in fellowship with other things? Do you find yourself in the mindset of the spirit or more in the mindset of the flesh? You see, we always ask this question. If you died today, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? And I pray for everybody in this room and I pray for everybody that is watching right now. I pray that you can answer that question. And here's the only way that we can answer that question with a yes. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with how many times you've gone to church. It has everything to do with what Jesus did on the cross. When he died on the cross, he shed his sinless blood to cover our sins. And he said this, if you would come to me, all who place their faith and trust in me can have eternal life through Jesus Christ. All he asked is, will you trust me? Will you let go of everything else and trust me and ask him, repent of your sins. Say, I'm a sinner. I know that I've, I've done wrong. And I'm trusting in you to conquer those sins and to cleanse me from my unrighteousness. If you die today, do you know if you go to heaven? The answer to that is only found in Jesus. Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ? If you have not, let today be that day. Let's talk to you. But here's a follow-up question to this. If you, instead of dying today, if you wake up tomorrow, will your life be different because the Spirit lives inside of you? We don't often ask that question. How is my life different because I am saved? How is my life made different? Am I just a better version of myself? Am I just a more confident person for myself because I got my eternal fire insurance and I know that I'm going to go to heaven, but the rest of this life is my own because it's not. It's his. See, Jesus sent the comforter so we could live like God intended while we're on the way to heaven. God didn't just say, hey, I'll save you. I'll see you in heaven. No, when he saves us, the spirit comes to live inside of us continually every day, every moment as our savior as our closest friend. And a lot of times we pass that over. Look at what it says in verse number 10 and 11 and we're done. It says, now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. What that means is the stuff that we worry about in the physical realm, yeah, it still matters, but it's all gonna fade away. It doesn't have eternal value, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. See, the spirit of God gives me the power and the grace to live different, to live with love, to live with joy, to live with peace, to live with patience, to live with gentleness and kindness and faith and meekness and self-control. That's the fruit of the spirit. And also, he gives us the power to live with hope. And no matter what it is that we may be facing, no matter what temptation may be coming our way, if I am in Christ, I am not under condemnation. 
And verse 10 through 11 tells us that though our bodies may fail, though our flesh may still rear its head from time to time, the power of the Spirit overcomes that, that gravity will never bring us all the way down anymore. So I want to close this morning by sharing these three true statements that I actually borrow from Pastor J.D. Greer. And he says this, what can we get from this? These are true, three statements of truth that we need to get. Number one is, the Christian life is not gradual self-improvement, which is what a lot of people think is. I'm a Christian, so I'm just going to be a better person. And that's a lot of times the way we live our life. I'll just be better. I'll just willpower my way to the winning walk. Christian life is not gradual self-improvement. It is fellowship with the Spirit of God. So don't ask yourself, man, why can't I get that together? Ask yourself is, am I having fellowship with the Spirit? The second thing is that coming to Christ is not a return or an entrance into religion. It is surrender to a person. It's surrender to Christ. Don't say, hey, I'm going to church now, so I think I found religion. No, it's surrender to a person, Jesus Christ. You're beginning a relationship with him. And the third thing is I can have hope even when I feel like I'm dead. And that may be you this morning. And as we close out this morning, as we bow our heads and close our eyes and go to a time, get ready to go to a time of response, that may be you. You may be sitting here thinking, I rolled in here on spiritual fumes. I feel like I got nothing left to give. My life is spinning out of control. I don't know what's going on. And you got no answers. Even when I feel like I'm dead in Christ, I have everything. Your spiritual condition, your spiritual position has not changed. That's why the gospel and that's why our relationship with Christ is not always about how we feel. It's about what we are in him. Who we are in him. We are his. We are not condemned. And trust me, man, the enemy is going to try his hardest to condemn us and make us feel like, man, you should have done this. You should have done that. And probably maybe right. Should we have done better? Yeah. Could you have done better? No, not on your own. The power of the Spirit could have. If you're walking in fellowship with the Spirit. But there is no condemnation in that. I have hope even when I feel dead that the God who raises dead things to life has raised me to life. And I'm not dead in Him. Never again. So as we are in this time of just personal reflection, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, if you died today, do you know for sure if you go to heaven? If you don't know that today, here's how you know. Here's what the Bible says. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's standard. Knowing that, God loved us enough. He didn't get mad at us. He loved us enough that he gave his only son. The only thing most precious to him, he gave freely. To die on a cross. To pay a debt that we couldn't pay. And pay that for us. And all he asks for us is to repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross. If you have never done that, if you have never called to God and said, God, just show your mercy to me, and I'm the best I know how, I'm trusting in Jesus and what he did and what he's done. If you've never done that, let today be the day that you do that. Just say, God, be merciful to me. I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that my sin separates me from you, but I also realize that you love me. And Jesus, that you died for me. And I'm receiving that forgiveness now. I'm asking for that forgiveness. And I'm trusting you to be my Savior. And to be my Lord. 
The Bible says that if we will call on the name of Jesus Christ, we'll be saved. That's calling on him. You say, what else do I need to do? Where do I need to sign? What else? There's nothing. Jesus already did all the work. So if you'd be willing to call on him, call on him now. If you've never done that. But if you have, here's the second question. How has it made a difference? What difference is it making in your life? What difference? You say, well, I don't know if I see God making much of a difference. <laughs> That's not the question I ask. What difference is he making in your life? Are you allowing him to? Are you open to it and what he's doing? Heavenly Father, pray that you would have your will and way in this time of invitation. Speak to us. And I pray that you would work in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand today. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.